Father, as we open your word, I pray, God, that you would give us a remembrance for believers in the room, a remembrance for how significant it is to follow Jesus, to hear him come and to see him come, to hear him say, follow me. Give us the wonder that we should hold in our hearts as we remember that in our, in our lives, Lord. And for others in the room that are not yet following him, I pray as we meet Jesus in this text, I pray, God, that they would see his glory in such a way that his grace would be irresistible to them, that his call would be effectual to them, and they would leave here as followers of the way, followers of the king, followers of the lamb. Work in this time. May your will be done, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter one and verse 35. John 1, 35. Robert Dick, William, Robert Dick Will, Wilson, excuse me, was once an Old Testament professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Robert Dick Wilson. He was known for his great attention to detail, his zeal for handling God's word accurately. He himself had learned 45 different languages, including Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, including all the languages that the Bible had been translated into the first 600 years of its history. He had such a zeal to ensure that others handled God's word carefully and accurately. Often former students of Wilson's would come back to seminary and would preach in their chapel service. And when a former student would come, Wilson would go to the chapel service to see how one of his former students did. On this one particular occasion, a former student preached a sermon in chapel and was met by Wilson afterwards, not knowing what the feedback would be. And the conversation went like this. Wilson said, quote, I am, a, I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to sodders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. His former student asked him to explain, and he replied, well, some men have a little god, and they always, they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of inspiration and transmission of scriptures. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who are, have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. He paused a moment, smiled, and said, God bless you, turned around, and walked out. I wonder this morning if you are a big godder or a little godder. That story, when I read it in recent months, prompted me to think about when we meet Jesus for the first time in this gospel this morning, what are we expecting of him? No doubt you will bring your assumptions into a setting like this about who Jesus is. What is he like from the beginning? What is our first impression of him? As we meet the Son of God, are we expecting to meet a big God or little God? The Apostle John doesn't begin with Jesus' birth story. 
He doesn't begin with him growing up. Where we see John start with Jesus is the beginning of his public ministry. And right away, we see that Jesus doesn't ease into it. No, he's on a mission with full authority to fulfill it. And when we meet Jesus for the first time in this gospel, it's his authority that shines through the most. So let's meet Jesus in the gospel of John, chapter one, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. We meet Jesus through John the Baptist. Verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looks, he sees Jesus as he's walking by. He says, behold the Lamb of God. He's right there. Now remember, John had just said this the day before. This is where we were last week. We heard him say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that language points to Jesus' sacrifice. He's the Lamb on the altar of the cross, taking away the sin of the world, as John said last week. Now it's the next day, and Jesus is passing by this time. And John the Baptist says again, behold the Lamb of God, there he is. But this time, verse 37 tells us that two of John's disciples, in particular, heard it. And when they did, they left John and went after Jesus. Now just think on what's happening in this text. These men who recognize John as their leader, they hear him say, in essence, take your attention off of me and focus it on him. Go focus on what John calls him the Lamb of God. Now realize, they don't know Jesus. They've never met him. They're going solely on the testimony of John the Baptist, who they trust, their former leader. They're trusting him when he directs them to go to Jesus. And so they do, not knowing anything about him, except John keeps calling him this lamb, lamb of God. Now, what might we expect of a lamb? I mean, if, if you were to pick an animal to represent you, you wouldn't pick a lamb. You'd pick a lion. If you were to ask your wife, honey, 
what animal do I represent? And then you'd quickly say, actually, don't answer that as you remember your clothes all over the floor because she would likely say a pig, right? No, your wives wouldn't say that. I'm sure they're all poking you saying, honey, you're a stallion. We don't think of lambs as the strongest of creatures. There's a reason you've never heard of a sports team being called the fighting lambs. In fact, when we see an athlete that's in particularly scrappy and gritty and tough nose, there's kind of a saying going around these days. I think it's kind of new, kind of not. I don't know, but there's a saying when they find a scrappy athlete, what do you say? He's got that dog in him, right? You never hear anybody say, look at the lamb in that dude. Nowhere. What connotations do you have with lambs? You might think, well, Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And then you make the connection, Mary, Jesus, lamb. Oh my goodness, she did have a little lamb. See, we hear lamb in association with Jesus and we might think puny, hesitant, passive, afraid, weak, timid, unsure. What do you expect of Jesus, this lamb of God? In this section, we're gonna see four interactions with Jesus, four encounters of individuals interacting with the lamb of God. And what you see from the lamb is not puniness, but strength, not hesitancy, but assertiveness, not fear, but confidence, not nervousness and uncertainty, but action. And ultimately, you'll see authority. This lamb has authority. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I don't know why Christian schools don't go with the mascot of the risen lambs. <laughs> Complete authority. I said there's gonna be four interactions. We're only gonna get to three of them today. I had every intention to try to fit all four in the text, but it just is too long and you have a delicious barbecue lunch waiting for you. So I've already messed up my preaching card that I handed out a few weeks ago. So we'll just make adjustments for that. But We'll cover three of the four today. Three interactions, each one will show us a different aspect of Jesus' authority. Number one, notice Jesus has authority to command your life. Jesus has authority to command your life. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God, and they follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and, and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? These first two disciples seem to me to be a little bit hesitant. Why do I say that? Well, because they're following Jesus for long enough for Jesus to realize it and he has to turn around and engage them. It's not as though they run to him and say, um, excuse me, sir, and engage in conversations. No, the text seems that they're following Jesus to the point where Jesus turns around and engages them. And the first words Jesus says to them is not an introduction, it's not how you do, and it's not, hey, I'm Jesus, nice to meet you. The first words that he says to them, the first words we hear Jesus say in this gospel is a question, what are you seeking? 
Now, no doubt, this is addressing their immediate lingering around him. What do you guys want? But knowing the mission of Jesus, this question is also meant to lay bare their soul right then and there. What are you seeking? And I imagine these divine words from Jesus just cut straight to the heart like a hot butter knife through butter. Friends, Jesus would have you answer the same question this morning. What are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you longing for? What are you after? People seek all sort of things in Jesus. Why are you here this morning? To get a barbecue lunch. (laughs) What are you seeking in Jesus this morning? Is Jesus a quick fix band-aid for the sin of last night? Is he merely a card that keeps you out of hell and gets you into heaven? Is he a category that hangs nicely on the charm bracelet of your life? Does he add some sort of advantage to you for the cultural expectation for business? You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a member, member at Abner Creek. You know, after all, you clients can trust me. I'm a Christian. Does he fill some religious void in the portfolio of your life? Is he what you naturally claim is yours since everyone in your family does? And after all, you have to check some sort of box for religion on the paperwork. Is Jesus the spiritual 911? Is he the key to earthly blessings for you? Is he a nostalgic feeling for Christmas time? The icing on the cake for Easter so we have candy and eggs and nice colors and get-togethers and of course we have Jesus. Friends, wherever you try to fit Jesus into your life, I wonder what are you seeking from him? Jesus will not be the lackey of a self-centered life of yours. He comes, he questions what you're seeking because he means to be your Lord. These two guys follow Jesus. Jesus turns around and completely spotlights their motives. Like, boom, just cuts to the heart. He gets down to the wire. What do you guys want? And notice what they say in verse 37. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, that's a term of honor, someone that they recognize as possessing authority, and perhaps they say with a bit of a stutter, um, where are you staying? And just realize that they have just been put on the spot. What are you seeking? It's the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Now, I don't know what their demeanor is exactly at this point toward Jesus, But given the circumstances, given the authority that Jesus has, given the fact they've just been put on the spot, they've been asked this pointed question, I imagine their response might be something like, well, gee, what are we seeking? Um, You see, we were just wondering if we could come and talk for a few minutes or a little bit, whatever you have time for, and it doesn't have to be now, just maybe we can talk with you and I don't know, just come by later at your place. Where, where are you staying? 
Where are you staying? And so Jesus says, verse 39, come and you will see. Like right now? Yes, right now. Come and you will see. You want to know where I'm staying? I'll take you there right now. And verse 39 shows they went and they talked for hours. Friends, notice the authority Jesus has to command their lives. Friends, notice Jesus' authority to command your life. Whatever you're seeking in Jesus, do you realize that when you approach him, he has absolute authority to say, I'm calling the shots. Jesus has authority to wreck your schedule, to wreck your dreams of plans for the future, to say, come now and see. Jesus says, I'm not even gonna tell you where we're going. I'm just, calling, I'm just gonna call you to come and follow right now. Come and see. You say, what about my family? What about my friends? What about the people, what they expect of me? And what about my reputation? And what about my plans next weekend? Jesus says, come and see. Absolute authority to command your life. Second, notice Jesus has authority to change your identity, to change your identity. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. These first two disciples spend apparently hours in conversation with Jesus. One of them is Andrew. And John tells us that Andrew has a brother whose name is Simon. And why is that important? Because Andrew will leave Jesus and the first thing he does is he goes and talks to his brother. And what does he say? Verse 41 we found him. Found who? We found the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? The Christ. The Messiah is that great anointed leader from God that he would send to save Israel. The people were expecting his arrival for hundreds of years. They're looking for the promised one to come. Andrew goes to his brother and says, Simon, we found him. And then... He brings his brother to Jesus. I'm gonna talk about that more next week. Notice all the bringing to Jesus that happens in this text. He brings Simon to Jesus. And now this is the second interaction, Jesus and Simon. And what happens? Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now I love that Jesus just cuts to the chase, man. He he, you know, chit-chat, warm-ups can be tiring. Jesus doesn't have a place for them at the moment. Notice the text says, Jesus looked at him, a man he's never met. All Jesus had to do was look at him. Again, no introduction, no how you doing, no nice to meet you. Jesus looks at him and says, you're currently Simon, but now you'll be Cephas. I mean, who does the guy think he is? That's what I would have thought. 
I mean, we're used to this from Jesus, but imagine someone who's not. Jesus meets a stranger that he's never met, that he seemingly to everyone else knows nothing about. The first thing he does is he looks at him head to toe and he changes his name. Who does he think he is? Put yourself in Simon's shoes your whole life. You've been Simon. All your friends and buddies call you Cy. And now you meet someone you've never met and he says, now you'll be Peter. John is showing Jesus' undeniable authority to change this man's name, to change his identity. And if you know anything about Peter, you know Peter is the the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He is the one who often speaks first and thinks later. He shoots and aims second. You might expect Peter to say, yeah, call me that one more time and see what happens. He doesn't. He just accepts it. He embraces it. He adopts it. I've been Simon my whole life. Now family and friends call me Peter. Why? Because he said, that's my name. What we see from Jesus here is the divine action of authority. We know of name changes in scripture. Think of Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Sarai to Sarah. It's nothing new, but here's the catch. In those times, God is doing the name change. And he gives a name to represent a particular calling and assignment. Now we see Jesus performing this divine act, calling and assigning Peter for a particular purpose. He has that authority. He has the authority to change your identity. Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, has Jesus changed your identity? Do you remember what you were like before Jesus changed you? Do you recognize that Jesus is still bringing change about within you? He has that authority. We swim in a cultural pool of thought that says, well, this is just how I am, deal with it. Yeah, you know, and many sadly in the church adopt this philosophy. Oh, I've always been blunt. I've always shared my mind, wore my emotions on the sleeve. I've told it like it is. That's just how I am. Friends, do you realize that whatever your how I am is, Jesus has authority to completely change it in whatever way he wants because he has authority to change your identity. Jesus has this authority to command your life. He has the authority to change your identity. And third and finally, notice Jesus has the authority to call you effectually. To call you effectually. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is the third interaction, Jesus and Philip. Now this is short and simple in the text, but what happens at a heart level here is significant. What is obvious to me from the start of this interaction is what I'm calling the salvific hunting of Jesus. Notice the emphasis of Jesus deciding to go to Galilee. And when he gets there, he finds Philip. 
You know, Jesus wasn't a wanderer. Every step is intentional, every journey purposeful. And his course at this moment was to set out for Galilee because there was a man named Philip there to save. In the late 19th century, Francis Thompson wrote a poem that would become popular and was entitled, The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven, referring to God's unrelenting pursuit to track sinful man's winding course and hunt him down and win his heart. G.K. Chesterton called it the most magnificent poem ever written in English. Tolkien said Chesterton didn't give the poem the credit it deserved. The hound of heaven. Friends, look in this text. Look at Jesus just mingling in Bethany with the crowds. Look at him pointed out by John. Look at him engaging with Andrew, John, and Peter. It's all as he's designed. It's right on schedule. He's drawing his disciples into his mission. And with three of 12 disciples reeled in like the hound of heaven, he picks up Philip's trail from afar. He decides to journey north and he hunts the one down for whom he means to save. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, Follow me. And from what we can tell, Philip simply follows Jesus, period. This greater theological reality that's taking place here is significant to spend a few moments on. I say Jesus has the authority to call you effectually because what we see taking place here is what's called the effectual call the effectual call. In the Bible, there are two types of calling. You have a general call and you have what's called an effectual call. The general call is the gospel good news that goes out throughout all the world. It's the call that falls on every ear. It's the call that man offers to man and preacher offers to crowds. It's the friend offering to the friend. The general call is given every time someone shares the gospel and yes, calls someone to believe. This is plain in scripture, is it not? So plain, we take it for granted. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That verse allows me to look every single one of you in the face and say, if you would believe in Jesus and everything of what that means, if you would believe, you would be saved. You wouldn't perish. Your sin would be paid for. You'd have everlasting life in heaven with God if you would believe. Would you believe? The general call to every single one of you this morning, to everyone that would ever see this online, to everyone that would ever hear that word in the nations, would you believe? It's a general call. Turn to him now. If you're someone this morning who hasn't trusted in Jesus, if you've never had a thought of having your sins paid for, you can have it right now. It's the general call that rings true throughout all the nations. It's why we open our mouths at work. It's why I preach every Sunday. It's why we send missionaries because there are lost people who need to hear the gospel call for how they can be saved. That's the general call. But there's a problem with the general call. There's a fundamental problem. What's the problem? This call goes out 
but everyone is not believing. So obviously something is happening as the call goes out and people hear it. What's the problem? You say, well, the problem is there are people who have never heard it. Yes, that's a a terrible problem that there remains unreached corners of the world where the gospel's tune has never been sung. This is terrible, but it's not the worst problem. What's the fundamental problem? You say, well, the fundamental problem is people reject the call. Yes, that's terrible. People reject the call, that people would spit in the maker's face and reject the wonderful truth. It's absolutely terrible. That's not the fundamental problem. You say the problem is Christians aren't extending the call. Absolutely right. How terrible that Christians would keep this message to ourselves instead of sharing it with the world. But it's not the fundamental problem. What is the fundamental problem of when the general call goes out? The problem is that general call lands on the ears of dead people. And how well do dead people's ears work? Yes, how horrible that Christians don't extend the call. How horrible that people have never heard the gospel. How awful it is that people reject the call. But listen, even if the message gets to the corners of the earth that have never heard, it still gets there and lands on dead people. Even when the message is rejected by many, they reject it because they're dead people. Now, why do I speak in such morbid terms? If you're kind of new to church and you're like, dead people, that's not, I mean, we're living, hello, we're moving. (laughs) Why why speak in such morbid terms? Well, I speak like this because the Bible talks like this. The Bible refers to all of us in our natural state of sin as being dead to God spiritually. Now, we don't like to imagine ourselves like that. Somehow we think scripture is exaggerating or somehow it can't really be true. Friends, it's as true as the sky is blue and water is wet, as clear as the word is here. Mankind in our inherited nature from conception is born and is born dead to God. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have about God that I'm just committed my life to devoted blowing it up is that people think people are neutral to God. Like everyone's just on a a spiritual fence. And at some point in your life, you either choose to receive God or reject him. But until then, you're just kind of straddling that neutral zone. But Ephesians 2 and other places say that we aren't neutral toward God. Ephesians 2 goes on to describe what being dead to God looks like. We follow three masters instead of one God. We follow the world, we follow Satan, we follow our own fleshly desires. And what's, it, what's the result? Ephesians 2 says we are children of wrath. The fundamental problem when the general call goes out is that it lands on the ears of dead people. A professor in seminary used to try to prove this point or make this illustration when he would take his first year preaching students out and allow them to preach in open air. And where would he take them? He would take them to the cemetery. And yes, they would preach in front of tombstones because what's the professor's point? Unless God works, your message is just gonna fall on tombstones. Now, if the fundamental problem with the general call 
that goes out is that it lands on dead people, then what's the fundamental solution? What's the solution? This leads us to the second kind of calling in scripture. The second kind of calling we see all over scripture that is exercised is what's called the effectual call. Meaning it's a call that proves effective. It doesn't bounce off spiritual hardness. It penetrates through spiritual hardness. It's the solution because the effectual call follows the general call so that as the gospel message is spread, the effectual call of God makes people receptive to its word. So man extends the general call to believe to everyone and we should absolutely be zealous to present the gospel to every person and then God extends the effectual call to individuals so that they're awakened and enabled to believe. We see this, here's Bible for you, this is the most important part. We see this in Romans 8.30. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. To those he called, he also justified. Now, when he says to those he called, he justified, is he referring to a general call that goes out into the world? To those who hear the general call that then they're justified? Well, clearly not because everyone's not justified. Everyone's not saved. Christianity is not a universalistic religion. We're not universalism here. We're just whoever hears is automatically saved. So what does he mean by to those he called, he justified? He means to those who he effectually called, to those he awakened from spiritual blindness. To these he justified. We're gonna see this further in John chapter six where Jesus will teach, no man comes to me unless my father draws him. We see this happening maybe most clearly in Acts chapter 16 where Paul's preaching and a dear woman named Lydia hears the gospel, the general call. And how is she saved? Acts 16, 14 says this. Paul's extending that call and it says, quote, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Friends, look at the simplicity of Philip's coming to Jesus. Jesus decides to go to Galilee. He finds Philip. He calls him and Philip comes. <laughs> Notice the irresistible nature of Jesus' saving grace here. Why irresistible? Because Philip gives none. Think about your conversion if you're a believer. When you were saved, think about when you became a Christian, no doubt for many years, some of you were saved at an early age. You may not remember some of it, praise God for that. But for some of you, you remember rejecting God over and over. Don't wanna have anything to do with it. You just resisted him over and over and over. But then something happened. What happened? Your stories are all different. A sibling, a revival, a radio message, a friend, a coworker, a book, somewhere you heard the general call of the gospel like you had so many times before, but this time was different. And at some point, either immediately or gradually, it all clicked. It just, it made sense to you. The gospel became good news. It mattered all of a sudden. And when it finally clicked, when you saw the beauty of Jesus, did you want to resist anymore? Absolutely not. You fell in gratitude, repentance, faith, humility, thankfulness. When you felt the lifting of shame, 
the forgiveness of sin, the guilt gone, hope found, life secure. There's no way you resist that. In fact, you want to sing as we will in just a moment. Come rejoice now, O my soul. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope secured. Christ is mine forevermore. There's no way you want to reject that. You saw what Jesus did and you embraced it. His grace was real. It was irresistible. You wanted to embrace. Brothers and sisters, I close with this. Here's what God would have you know concerning his effectual call. He doesn't just want you to know some fancy theological term. God would have you know, if you're a believer this morning, that he did that for you. He decided to come to you through the friend, through the message, through that night, like the hound of heaven hunted you down. And in the moment of your conversion, you heard the call to believe and he turned the lights on for you. He effectually called you to himself and you responded in repentance and faith. He did that. Not only does he want you to be his, but he wants you to know how you became his because the glory belongs to him and not to us. Brothers and sisters, this is the irresistible, effectual calling of God. He found Philip, and if you're a Christian today, he wants you to know you didn't find him ultimately. He found you. Here in these three encounters, we see our first impression of Jesus Not a puny lamb, but one with authority. He's the lamb of Revelation 5, who's seen seated on the throne, the lamb that has authority to command your life, change your identity, and call you effectually. And because of that, if that's true of you, Christ is yours forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, what wondrous love you have shown and calling us to yourself. Father, indeed, the, the, the honor and the glory belongs to you. For when you approached us in grace, overcame our resistance, and won us to yourself. Lord, as believers in the room, we just want to say thank you. How humbling that is. For others in the room, Lord, who have never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that your grace would be effectual right now. That there would be such a stirring in their heart that they would have to respond, that they would have to talk to me or one of the pastors or someone else today to follow this Lamb of God. For your glory, make it happen, I pray in Christ's name, amen.